What flower comes in every color from white to red to orange to yellow, tan, green, aqua, blue, purple, violet, brown, even near black? It's the iris, specifically the bearded iris. Hello and welcome. My guest today is Kelly D. Norris, the 25-year-old horticulturist, plant breeder, and plantsman from Iowa. He's the award-winning author of three books, and he has a new book, A Guide to Bearded Iris, Cultivating the Rainbow. When Kelly was about 14 years old, he talked his family into driving down to Texas and buying an iris nursery, digging up all the plants and shipping them to Iowa, where he founded the Rainbow Iris Farm, a nursery that sells irises today. Kelly has a lot to say, and he also writes about the horticultural industry, but today the subject is iris. I'm speaking with Kelly Norris, and we're, we're going to talk about iris. We could talk about a million things, and we could talk for hours, but we don't have hours, and since you have a new project and a new product, um, I think we should talk about that and, and your new book, A Guide to Bearded Irises, Cultivating the Rainbow. For beginners and enthusiasts has just come out and uh, i'm going to i could say wonderful things about the book which i might as well i guess i'll do that right now wow <laughs> well that's 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 a very flattering compliment thank you ken i think one of the first things you said to me was this doesn't look like a timber press book uh which you said to everybody and not that everybody would know what a timber press book is but right 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 it doesn't look like any book which i think is much more important <laughs> Uh, it's a really cool shape. It's almost square, and the cover really tells the story. We got some sexy rainbows, mm -hmm. and uh, the whole book, the design is wonderful. And your mark, your your stamp is all over this book. Uh, I have to say that the text is a little small for us old folks. <laughs> I'll pass that along to the designer. <laughs> but I've been there before. I know you got so much to say and only so many pages. So here's your choice: That's reading, right. reading glasses or information. And That's right. I'll go with the information and the and maybe a magnifying glass. It's not that bad. I'm kidding. But let's start in sort of the beginning. And I don't mean with you. I mean, what are bearded iris? Yeah, um, so, you know, bearded irises are, uh, if, if you did a survey of you know, the general public and asked them to name the most familiar perennials, bearded irises almost always are number one or number two on the top of that list, right around competing with daisies in the general sense and, and orchids. Um, you know, irises have, um, and, and at that bearded irises are, are such a, uh, you know, a wonderful part of our, our floral heritage in the last hundred years in, in this country. I mean, it's almost hard to imagine a time uh, when gardeners uh, perhaps didn't have just rather common, like, clumps of, of bearded irises outside the door or around the back fence. Um, and uh, so, you know, but from a botanical standpoint, uh, uh, there are 325 species of irises, uh, that's all kinds of irises, and there's a whole host of irises that grow in a whole range of conditions, from swamps to, to deserts to alpine meadows uh, to our backyards. And, uh, in fact, bearded irises uh, of those 325 species count for only about 60 species of, of those. Um, and then to just kind of keep winnowing this down here, of those 60 species, about 10 to 12 were used uh, predominantly in the creation of the modern bearded iris hybrids, because of course, as, as folks will learn when they they read the book, there are uh, uh, you know several different kinds of, of bearded irises, and uh, many of those were were sort of products of horticulture. Uh, so from those ten or twelve species, uh, 
a whole host of hybrids, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of hybrids. I mean, verging up where, you know, 25, 30,000. I know I have to, like, jump in because I've spoken to you before. <laughs> you <laughs> can't, you can't just, see me raising my stuff. hand. <laughs> uh, where do some of these species that have gone into the production and the development of hybrid bearded iris come from, and why do people call them German bearded iris? Well, so that's that's a very good question. Um, so uh, the the distinction, of course, between a bearded iris and a beardless iris is is not terribly botanical, in, in the sense that they're the the way we've categorize them systematically isn't necessarily based that way. But basically, if you look at the structure of a flower, of, of the iris flower, uh, bearded irises have this sort of fuzzy appendage that sits at the, the crest of the fall, which of course are the, the, the downward hanging uh, uh, tepals, actually not petals, but tepals. Um, and that fuzzy appendage um, at the top is, is sort of like a runway strip for pollinators. It's kind of this, this flag that, that that probably, uh, you know, not having you know the plants to actually talk to to ask them why they have beards, we hypothesize as biologists that it's some kind of runway, uh, so to speak. It's it's a, it's a it's a mechanism, a function of reproductive biology. Um, so, but 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 to your question about uh, where some of these bearded irises come from, uh, you know, of those ten or twelve, um, a couple that were were really really instrumental that you'll find in the backgrounds of of, of uh, of, of many, many uh, uh, modern cultivars uh, are things like Iris pallida, which was uh, one of the, uh, uh, well, so Iris pallida and Iris variegata were two European species. So these are things that are found um, around the Mediterranean um, into, in the case of Iris variegata, more into Central Europe, up into Hungary, uh, the Czech Republic in these days. Um, but, but really what, you know, kind of made the quantum leap for irises back in the early 20th century were the um, some of these these tetraploid species uh, that were coming from uh, places uh, like uh, interior Asia and Kashmir and uh, that were uh, collected by missionaries and sent back in the form of you know seeds and rhizomes to uh, uh, folks in in the UK at the time who were were studying and breeding and making crosses with these things and uh, uh, in time that's uh, and then just really just a, a few years then there were an array of new hybrids coming out that kind of opened up the rainbow of possibilities. Yeah, so how did we get German, and what is tetraploid, and besides the <laughs> falls, the part that sticks up is called the <laughs> the standard? standard. <laughs> yep, so iris terminology is very straightforward. Standards stand up, falls fall down, beards are fuzzy, there you go. As to where um, the, the German part came from, in fact, there's a species called iris germanica, mm. Uh, that many of us have have seen and grown up with because it's that sort of knee-high purple iris that smells uh, really, really nice and fragrant and kind of grapey that blooms uh, in the earlier to mid parts of spring as we're leading up to this, you know, glorious array of of uh, peak, you know, tall bearded bloom season or something. Iris germanica itself, as we, as we know it, is a sterile natural hybrid. I mean, it's, it's a sterile uh, plant that, that itself was not used a lot in breeding. Now, you know, there's where this gets a little messy is some of the taxonomy, uh, you know, is, is a little murky as it comes to some of this. Um, so there were clones of um, things that we now consider by all intent, for all intents and purposes, um, Iris germanica. There were, there were some of these cultivars at the time that were used quite extensively, and they tended to have names um, uh, 
their cultivar names uh, were, as you'll read in the book, were were given based on where they were collected. So the suspicion that, that we have now is that a lot of these uh, original clones that came into commerce were probably not true species. I mean, irises are these kind of pennant, wonderful, wonderfully colored flowers that no doubt had been cultivated long before Western civilization came across them, you know, of course, through, through areas of, of, of Europe and Asia. And so it's, it's likely that, you know, long before, you know, us Westerners got our hands on them, that people uh, in those cultures were cultivating irises and that uh, the irises that the Westerners were coming across in the wild, so to speak, were actually what we would today call cultigens or, or you know, former cultivars that had kind of, you know, gone back to the wild, so to speak, and uh, were, were remaining from, you know, a previous garden or something. So the, the German in German bearded irises kind of comes along as, a, I think, a little bit of a semantic cultural baggage um, to, um, uh, to the whole game. So uh, certainly Iris Germanica, of course, if you go to a nursery and you see a tag or something, it'll always say, no matter what, if it's a bearded iris of any kind, it'll always say Iris Germanica and a cultivar. And that's not really completely entirely correct, but uh, it's kind of a, an evolution that's taken place, I think, semantically more than anything else. Well, you were talking about Iris Germanica, those knee-high early purple, and people, those are the ones that you actually still see next to houses or by the road and, you know, 100-year-old clumps that might yes, be Iris Germanica. Yeah, they're very common in that sense, too. I mean, there are there are other couple, um, there are, are other, uh, you know, knee-high purple varieties that, that also are, are, are common, I depend on, on the vintage and things, but, but certainly... Uh, you know, uh, chances are, if you go wandering around the countryside in uh, the waking days of spring and and uh, start to see these shorter clumps of bearded irises sending up these purple-budded stalks, chances are it's probably a clone of Iris Germanica. And I write about that actually in the the chapter on intermediates. That in a sense, uh, you know, it's it's uh, Iris people sort of turned Iris people, <laughs> quote unquote, the Irisarians. People. I mean, the, this, the, the tribe of people who are crazier about irises than normal people would think healthy sort of turned their noses up at Iris Germanica because it's just that sort of right. sinful weed. But it, it, it's kind of romantic in a sense, don't you think? I, think, I do think so. But okay, yeah. I have to jump in again. Nehi, uh, intermediate. Okay, so we think of giant bearded iris. We think right. of the giant bearded iris, maybe yep. plants that grow to three feet, really. Mm -hmm. yeah. But uh, what so many people, and I regret this, so many people don't know that there are those wonderful little five-inch tall minis yeah. and dwarfs. Yeah. So can you d just tell us a little bit about the categories of bearded iris? Sure, sure. Well, there are six different kinds of bearded irises, ranging from the miniature dwarfs, which you just mentioned, which are the earliest uh, blooming of the bearded iris tribe. They they announce spring by any accounts. They, they tend to stem from little iris pumula, uh, which is a, a dwarf species that's, uh, that's uh, wild across the uh, across Europe is a dwarf tetraploid species. Of course, we I think we asked about tetraploids there and, and uh, didn't necessarily get back to that. Yeah, we will, though. Do, do that in a minute. <laughs> um, and so from the miniature dwarfs, we, we march up the scale through um, uh, the standard dwarfs, which are a little bit taller and bloom a little bit later. Uh, we move into the intermediates, which, again, are a little bit taller and a little bit later. Uh, and then there are two other classes kind of in the middle. One is called, uh, rather paradoxically, the miniature tall bearded irises <laughs> um, and uh, uh, then there are the border bearded irises and these things kind of along with the intermediates kind of hold through the mid-season they're kind of uh, you know the bridge between the short and the tall and then and then uh, in the, the last you know days of, of spring as we bleed into early summer the tall beardeds take hold and and carry us through to 
uh, the beardless things that start after that, the Siberians, the Sporias, and that sort of thing. Um, so that's kind of, in a, in a nutshell, how the chronology works. It just happens to be that the shorter ones uh, bloom the earliest, and as we march up the scale and height, we also march up the calendar, so to speak, uh, into the days of late spring. So, uh, okay, so tetraploid? Yeah, so, uh, you know, Genetics 101, uh, there are... are um, are diploids in the world. Uh, humans are, are diploid organisms, um, and then there are, are things that uh, ha- are, are you, you organisms like plants, which uh, uh, can, for whatever reasons, uh, handle uh, ploidy different and, and better than other organisms can. Uh, so uh, a tetraploid essentially has twice as much genetic information to work from as a diploid. You're type. talking about chromosomes. Yeah, I'm talking about the number of chromosomes and the size of the genome. That's correct. Um, and so a tetraploid uh, has, uh, you know, has four copies instead of two copies of the, uh, of, uh, of, of the, the chromosome set uh, that, that that organism has. And so, um, you know, a tet- what, and this, from, a, from a practical sense, which is where I'm really trying to get to because, because the, you know, the numbers and the counting aren't so much important in, in the grand scheme of things here, is to get the point across that a tetraploid, uh, has a, a greater capacity to uh, for, for a number of things. One, tetraploids uh, in plants uh, often tend to have larger flowers. They often tend to have properties like ruffling and and enhanced fragrance and these sorts of things, which all are are, are very desirable horticulturally. And in the case of irises, what tetraploidy allowed us to do is to really open up this color range. I mean, can you imagine at one point? Um, folks like uh, W.R. Dykes and Sir Michael Foster, people that are, are by all accounts the godfathers of the genus Iris, at one point these very intelligent, bright British men around the turn of the 20th century were convinced that if there were, was not some major novel breeding breakthrough in irises, and in bearded irises at that, that they may never become that popular as garden plants because their mm-hmm. color, la- color range was actually somewhat limited at the time. So the discovery of these tetraploid species and their incorporation into breeding around the turn of the 20th century really allowed and kind of fueled irises into greater popularity because we were able to, you know, give them bigger, you know, we're able to select for bigger flowers and an enhanced range of colors. And, and then what do you know, they, they caught fire. Well, iris plants like uh, other plants like gladiolas and dahlias, mm-hmm. so for years people thought, oh, those are just, you know, that's grandmother plants and mm-hmm. we're not interested in them. And they did, to cer- well, they certainly fell out of favor if you compare 1950 to 1980. Mm-hmm. In 1950 when everybody was growing iris and they all wanted irises and people traded irises and, and couldn't wait for the next Shriners catalog to arrive right. <laughs> and see the the slightly enhanced <laughs> color pictures uh-huh. of some aqua iris or something. And and that was the thing. Every year you had to have the new iris. You had to have the hot new iris. And then irises did slide a little bit in favor and got associated with older things. And in the 50s, uh, people didn't want anything old. You know, everyone wanted modern, modern, and iris kind of slipped. But I, as you know, Iris are making a gigantic comeback. I think I think the pendulum in taste and and fancy is certainly swinging in their favor. Yeah. Well, and now that everything from the nineteen now with Mad Men and everything, everything right. from the nineteen fifties and sixties is hot. So, yes. gee, you better be right there and ready, <laughs> which well, you the are. Thing about, and the thing about bearded irises, of course, is that particularly 
the work that's happening. I mean, yes, there are are, are untold thousands of varieties uh, that that exist. But but if you you know have the chance to go visit an iris breeder, you know from the seedlings that are coming along that I mean we're we're, we're still uh, the possibilities ahead of us are still are still really quite endless and. You know, there's just the, the variations in color and pattern and in in uh, arrays and combinations of these things that we put together are, are just are, are fabulous. They're phenomenal. I mean, there is truly an iris for every taste, every garden, every style, uh, every it, condition. It, it re- really, I mean, considering the total genus, yes, that is an absolutely true statement. I mean, there is really an iris for just about every condition that, that you can give me. When I, I've, I, I do a talk uh, about what's new in the world of irises, and, and part of that talk is, is really selling to people this idea that the genus iris itself is tremendously versatile. And I challenge the audience to give to you know to, to come up with a situation where they, they you know they think about some tough spot in their yard. And, and, you know, I'll find you an iris. <laughs> there is just an iris for just such a tremendous array of conditions. I, I, I just, uh, uh, they're, they're very versatile perennials. Yeah. How about deep market. shade? Um, yes, in fact, there are irises that, that do like shade. Uh, iris cristata, um, mm-hmm. uh, which is the little crested iris, is very common throughout the eastern seaboard and the southeast. Uh, as, 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 a, as a wonderful native that, that, light, that does tolerate, can tolerate a fair amount of shade. It tends to prefer brighter shade in the wild, but it does, it does uh, occur in, in dark shade. I have it in a little dark shade in my backyard, and it does okay. Uh, you know, so, you know, I mean, there's really, and it's actually indestructible. It, it, I think it could grow in the I've killed it. <laughs> before well. the floods. No, before the floods. Uh, but uh, we don't have much time left, but uh, you have a w- wonderful section in the book about myths, and you go into a lot of things that people think about Iris, but uh, some of the things that you go into that I don't think are complete myths, uh, and we don't have much time, but can you tell me a little bit about, we don't even have time for the cultural care, but how about the problems? I mean, I, I'm mostly Iris borer, but diseases and problems, how how can how should one deal with those problems to avoid them? And we have to admit them, because for bearded iris, oh, sure. especially the big ones, they have problems, and they also well, have to be divided. Well, yes, yes. I mean, so the, you know, there is there obviously is a, you know a little maintenance and upkeep to to you know as an investment required by the gardener to to uh, you know pay off that kind of beauty that they're going to get from the end. If they um, if they want that, because you can leave them alone and you, they'll you, just stop blooming yeah. and maybe die. Well, <laughs> it, it, depending. I mean, it really depends. I mean, there are are you know, there are a host of cultivars that that really are quite tenacious and indestructible in that sense, but. Uh, you know, to, to, to your larger point, something about boars in particular, which uh, obviously most of your your listeners are, are are you know in the eastern part of the country, and so you know at that the the, the little footnote is, is of course iris boars, the the, the moth uh, the, that we're we're speaking of is actually only native to about the eastern two thirds of the country. So if you would ever retire or move to the west coast, you will leave your iris borer troubles behind because the moth is not native there. Oh, tricky. Um, yeah. <laughs> so that's your recommendation. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm 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 trying to create a mass exodus to the west coast. No, um, no, no. Really, these um, uh, you know, the thing about boars is is really a matter of of prevention, and 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 that you know 
leveled with that advice comes the reality that in some places the populations are, are thriving a lot better than they are in others. And so for some folks, you know, their their troubles with with boars are kind of verging on an infestation kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's, a, it's this it's this regimen of keeping the beds clean, keeping the debris moved away from these things, um, of taking up preventative measures um, such as doing a little you know burning of the clumps, which I talk about as strange and crazy as that sounds, is actually a very very handy. Uh, method. We uh, believe it or not, some of your listeners may need to sit, sit on their chairs to hear this. We burn off our entire seven and a half acre production field every spring, um, like religion. Uh, of course, we're in the country, so that's a little bit different than if you're, uh, you know, in uh, gardening on a little spot in Brooklyn. But um, uh, nonetheless, you can, uh, uh, you know, take measures like that to to really kind of just keep the, uh, you know, the health and conditions of your bed in in, in, in top shape like that too. As it comes to to dividing, of course, uh, you know, uh, everything needs a little maintenance every now and then. If we can tune up the house, we can tune up the garden. And uh, division, of course, is, is uh, you know, kind of a, a, a vexing thing for people sometimes. It's, you know, it's, it's like going and, you know, tearing apart a room uh, and, and looking at the mess afterwards. There's a really nice, handy kind of photo guide to dividing irises in the, in the book that we put together. Uh, and, uh, and dividing is a wonderful thing because you can spread the love around to your friends and your family. You can spread the love around your own yard. You end up with more of them. And, and uh, you know, in a, in a couple of years, they're back to doing their, their old routine, and they're in, in good shape. I'm going to jump in for a second. I have to tell you that that <laughs> part, of, part of your book where you show the dividing of the iris and you just mentioned it, it when I looked at it, I thought, oh, this looks like fun. <laughs> I can't I'm believe it. I'm glad to hear it. that. <laughs> I'm glad well, to hear that. I wanted to run right out and rip everything up. It's it, it really can be a lot of fun. I mean, I mean, I had a uh, an, an old nurseryman friend here in Iowa once tell me that um, uh, for any of his customers or clients that were uh, a little uh, hesitant about pruning, he always told them the easiest way. It was much easier to prune under the influence if they just took a <laughs> shot and, and headed out to the garden with a set of pruners. And I tend to think that works the same way with dividing irises. I mean, it can be rather a rather onerous task if you have a lot of them. So just you know, come home from a Rough day at work and uh, uh, imbibe you with your your favorite uh, favorite liquor and uh, you know grab and the when's the, and go. When's, the, when's the best time to do that? Uh, division is is really best done uh, kind of generally at any time six weeks after they finish flowering, which for most of the country becomes July through September basically, mm-hmm. and, and particularly in northern climates, July through September. So um, just right around the fourth of July, we'll start sharpening up the forks and. Uh, uh, heading to the field to uh, start the annual routine. So late summer and fall. When you uh, burn, is that because there's actually something overwintering or just for hygiene? Um, it is It is mostly just for hygiene. The wonderful thing about uh, burning is that uh, when you burn through in the earliest days of spring, just as the irises are coming up, um, you're not only removing the debris, but you're also removing anything that comes with the debris, such as little iris borer eggs and and uh, hatching iris or larvae and that sort of thing. So it's a very kind of, uh, um, you might say, humane way of just sort of just, just, just you know, clearing them out of the, the iris clumps like that. So when I see streaks in the iris foliage, mm-hmm. you know, like brown or gray streaks, right. uh, is that borer damage up the that's, leaves too? That, yeah, that's usually a fairly indicative sign of, of, of borers. Um, I, I would say our phone's been ringing quite a bit this year with, with folks uh, noticing a lot of brown spotting and, and things at the margins of their leaves. Now, that that is more or less indicative of fungal leaf spot, and, and the, most of the country has had a you know, fairly 
kind of warmer, milder, and in many cases, wetter spring. And so these are perfect conditions for for uh, little fungus that are in the soil to uh, uh, splash onto the leaves of the plant and, and uh, uh, form these little kind of you know circular brown uh, dots. It's more or less unsightly in that case. But if you start to really notice, uh, you know, you're seeing streaks and these kind of paths and channels of brown that kind of move up the the axis of the leaf that is is indicative of of iris borers because they uh, they they do kind of munch their way through the foliage and uh, down through the rhizome and and uh, out through the rhizome and then on to the next one next door so. yeah I don't think I've ever grown a bearded iris without streaks, I have to tell you. Oh. <laughs> and just to give you a little more information, iris fulva survives floods. It's flood yep. tolerant. You bet. You <laughs> and bet. even to my surprise, a lot of the bearded iris survived. Uh, thankfully, they were dormant. I think that yep. probably helped. I've been speaking with Kelly Norris, who is the author of a new book, A Guide to Bearded Iris, Cultivating the Rainbow, which is exactly what he does. And he also cultivates horticulture. And I think that's great. And Kelly, as always, it's been terrific to get a word in edgewise. And <laughs> <laughs> we should talk some more. But congratulations on your new book. It's really, it's smashing. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure speaking with you this morning, Ken. Well, that's it for another edition of Ken Drew's Real Dirt, The Garden Show. Next week's guest, we're going to talk about irrigation. <laughs> 